We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back everyone to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams, sitting here in Studio C... With James DiVirgilio, you know him, the golden voice of the podcast world. Guys, what's up? we got a fun show. We're going to talk playoffs. We're going to do some picks. We're going to talk our bowl game just a little bit, give you a little preview. We're going to talk about whether certain Gators should go pro or not. We're going to get you primed for the early signing day period. And then we're going to talk bowl games. We're going to pick a lot of weird bowls. Tell you what we think is going to happen between Tulane and Louisiana. Great news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint, and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10, or call 800-SPRINT-1 today. $19.79 a month after $19.80 monthly credit. Apply with two bills with approved credit. 18-month lease and new line of service. If canceled, literally remain balance due. Excuse tax coverage and offer not available everywhere. Third calculation fee restrictions apply. Louisiana and whatnot. James, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's a really warm day here in the Ville, Alan, for December. But got the house all decorated. Had our first Christmas movie night last night, which Glorious. may seem simple to you, but I can assure you, it's a much more complicated endeavor than what you at home or in your car are thinking. It's become quite the quite the anticipated event. So I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I'm feeling extra good. Last week we had the. The battle of King Kongs between James Newton and Alexander Leventhal on the Patreon game. And so, as always, as part of the show, take some time out to thank you guys for supporting us. We appreciate that greatly. If you like us, drop us a like on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. Send us an email, which we don't check all that often. So if you send us an email, it might be a week or so late, but we will get back to you. And, of course, lastly, you can give us a dono 
on Patreon. We had some new donos this week. Uh, Micah Pounders has been a longtime supporter of the show. Thank you, Michael. Upped his contribution. Appreciate that. And then Josh Wu. I've known Josh Wu for yeah, a very long time. Played flag football with Josh Wu. He's now Dr. Wu, I suppose. Whoa. But thank you for coming on board, Josh. And still, of course, all season long, the undefeated, undefeated undisputed champion Alexander Leventhal uh, back in the saddle. He had, some, he had a challenge last week. He was knocked off his mantle for a few hours, but he retains his position. If you have never logged into Patreon, Alan, to see in our levels, we have a small, medium, and large dono level. We added one last week, given all of the insanity that went on. There is now a, a hundo bomb level. Whoa. So if you want to give $100 to the podcast, which you could do and then like delete it so it's a one-time gift, you can do that in the hundo bomb category. <laughs> uh, so that's there as well. So donos, hundo bombs, all sorts of good stuff. Feel free. <laughs> and with that, Alan... Let's dive right into the content for today. Let's talk about the playoffs. So we entered okay. into the weekend. You and I had a discussion about four teams versus eight teams. You were in favor of four. I was in favor of eight. Interesting weekend. Very good weekend for me. I felt like we got a lot of what I think is is good chaos regarding the process. How can you possibly pick Oklahoma over Georgia, over Ohio State, over pick any other team you may want to include in the discussion? Of course, Alan, I think you'd argue at this point in time, that's what you want. Yeah, you that was good for me. I don't know what you're talking discussion. about. I argue it's unfair for people in a room to decide the fate of these football teams when no one knows who's going to win, and a lot of their games have been closely contested. I want to start the conversation with this one. Currently, we have a 14 playoff. Alan and I obviously discussed the ramifications of what we think is best. I think eight, for obvious reasons, discussed last week. I won't go over that again. I do want to talk about the four teams we have. Power ranking-wise... Not that these matter, Alan, but we can look at stats and other stuff to get a predictive ranking. Florida's 18th, to give you an example of how misranked we are. If you look at our actual power rankings, that feels about right to me. So power rankings, which ones are you using here? So we're going to use one on teamrankings.com. Okay. I like their power ranking. I think it's it's not necessarily like a mathematical wizardry as much as it is a balance of some, some stats I like. But UF's 18th, that feels about right to me. Notre Dame is 8th. Georgia is 3rd. These, these rankings are not end-all, be-all here. Alan. Secondarily, I want to cite Vegas spreads. If Vegas made spreads on the games, you'd have Alabama and Clemson at 1-2 and Georgia at like a 2A, almost the same as Clemson. Notre Dame would be the weakest team in the field. Oklahoma would be above them. So given the, the mandate to get the four best teams into the playoffs, do you think the four best teams are in the playoffs? Do you think Clemson, Notre Dame, Alabama, and Oklahoma are the four best teams? No, but it's close. I think Georgia is probably one of those best four teams, but they had they had their shot at the king. They had their shot at Bama, and they, and they lost. And they probably should have won and gotten themselves in there, but they didn't do it. The idea of this playoff this is, I mean, this is kind of a quarterfinal here. You know, the fact that they got to play Bama already, and so if you're if you're Georgia, you can't really complain. You were there. You would have had to play Alabama at some point in the playoff. You didn't get it done. And if you're Ohio State, you probably have a little bit of a complaint as well. But you also lost by like three touchdowns to Purdue. And you should have lost to Maryland. <laughs> Although you technically won, so good for you. Uh, but I, I'm fine with these four teams. I think it's a good set. I do think Notre Dame is the weakest of these four. I would take all three of the other teams against them in a game 
So here's what I find interesting with this process is we say that Georgia had their shot against Alabama. That is absolutely true. If you want to win, control your own destiny, beat the teams in front of you. I'm fine with that. But college football, much like any sporting environment, you could argue is not necessarily a fair landscape across the board. Now, before we get crazy saying that the ACC is much weaker than the SEC and things that we know are true, these things still happen in pro sports, Alan. I'm a huge fan of the Baltimore Orioles, and every single year they play in what is absolutely the hardest division in baseball. It is unfair that they are in that division versus other teams that are in other divisions. Now, baseball talks a lot about realigning, and same thing in the NBA and other sports, get more balanced scheduling. So this occurs. It's just in college football, I think it's a little bit extreme. If you look at Georgia's schedule, the teams they've played, which was relatively easy for Georgia, right? They don't have a lot of key wins. Right. It was still mathematically, if you follow any of those strength of schedule metrics, much harder than the schedule that Notre Dame or Oklahoma or Clemson played. So Clemson gets to play Pitt. Pitt, a team that Notre Dame struggled with, by the way, in their conference championship, why Georgia has to play Alabama. And oh, by the way, if Georgia beat them, Georgia would have to play Alabama again, presumably at some point in time. So to me, I think the solution here is you have to get rid of the conference championship games because it's not really a quarterfinal. I'd be fine with that. However, at the same point in time, I will argue if you're a Georgia fan, this is an incredible stat that Chris Musgrove shared with us that's hard to even imagine. Georgia and Alabama have obviously played twice, two times in the past two years. Alan, do you know how often Alabama has been leading? It can't be very much. Well, there were 290 plays ran in those two games. 290. What if I told you that Alabama led for nine of those plays? Oh, man, that's just a kick in the nuts if you're a UGA. That's an incredible statistic. Alabama, in all likelihood, is going to be your two-time national champion, and Georgia was beating them for 99% of the two games they played, and they did not win. Well, if you can't beat a backup quarterback, come on, Georgia. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Twice the backup quarterback gets you. But really, seriously, it is a little bit unfortunate for Georgia in this particular season. They had to go on the road against LSU, tough place to win. Team they were better than, laid an egg. And then they they outplayed Alabama for the entirety of that game and then wound up blowing it at the end. But they did have their shot. But the problem I have, like we said, is I don't like what we know they did. So the criteria they used is the, the floor strategy. They said, which team had the best floor scenario? Ohio State, as you mentioned, got blasted by Purdue. Oklahoma barely lost a rivalry game in a neutral site to Texas. And then Certainly it. much better floor than they beat them in the championship game on a neutral site again. So there's a much better story there. So Ohio State, therefore, is out. Georgia's worst low was on the road to LSU, which is why they jumped over Ohio State. That's how that criteria got stuck. That's why Georgia's five and not four. And that's what they used. I think the problem I have with using a floor strategy is typically – Teams with floor strategies don't win championships, Alan. It's the ceiling strategy. It's the team that gets hot at the right time. This is true in the NFL and the NBA. It's true in college basketball. It's true in sports. It's not the floor team. Notre Dame is almost certainly not going to win this national championship because they're precisely what they are. They're a consistent team that's not a great elite team. So I have a problem with the methodology, but I also understand that if you and I are on this committee, how else are we supposed to separate these teams? And that's my real issue with picking four. It's impossible to create any sort of fair metric to decide which one of these teams should go based upon what you've seen or what you've watched or what metric you like or what schedule they play. I think all of those teams deserve a shot at it. Alan, looking at what we're looking at now, floor versus ceiling, do you like the floor methodology for picking Well, no, teams? they're trying to balance 
like who they think the best teams are versus who the most deserving. And they use kind of a mixed method, I think. Although we do have a new commissioner or, I don't know, chief of the committee or whatever he calls himself. That, you know, if Alabama had lost, they wouldn't have been the most deserving, but they would have gotten in. So they'll say whatever they think they need to say to support what they think. And some years it's different. And if you notice, if you're trying to track what the committee does, if you're trying to build a airtight infrastructure around their decision-making, you can't do it because some years they'll say some things are more valuable. Sometimes they'll say others. I think they are thinking these are the four best teams. I do think in this scenario, they probably thought Georgia was better, but they're humans and they didn't want to light the world on fire. And so they had to take Oklahoma or Ohio state, whoever they judged to be better. They couldn't do it. Now, if it had been another scenario, maybe Georgia gets in, but in this case, uh, they're partners with these people who have these conferences and they're going to lock another conference out to get two SEC teams in. I just don't think they could do it. Now, again, if Alabama had lost, and especially with Tua not being healthy, maybe they still get in. I think they do. And then I think they were stuck with Notre Dame. As you listen to people around the country, I don't think many people think that Notre Dame is on the same level as certainly the top two teams. But they went undefeated. And I don't love that just who has the least number of losses. That's a bad way to pick these teams because not everyone's playing the same schedule. This is why UCF rightly doesn't make it into the playoff. I'm okay with this. Let me ask you this. They took Oklahoma. You were maybe projecting them to pick Ohio State. Now that you watched the the championship game, would, do you agree with their selection of Oklahoma over Ohio State if we're just pitting it those two teams? I think so, but... That was that was what we said last week. We said that Oklahoma has the better case because we said Ohio State got blasted by Purdue. And I think the only reason why I thought Ohio State might get in there is because Urban Meyer is like a prolific savant at getting himself in the playoff. But it's also clear that Urban Meyer is 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 checked out. He's not the same. You watch the postgame interview. I don't know what the deal is with his retirement talk. No one knows what's going on. But this is not the same Urban Meyer that, that gets fired up, campaigns for his team to make it, does the speaking tour. He actually didn't do anything Alan there was no verbal talk about it when he was asked a question about it he basically dismissed it that's so unlike the person that we've come to know as a football coach it's it's a weird thing Urban Meyer's life is a very weird thing to me in general but either way Oklahoma I think is more deserving if we're going to flip coins but again I hate that even being something to me those teams need to play each other and we'll find out who's more deserving when they play each other especially because they're really mirror images of each other in a large way and I think it's safe to say that Oklahoma's schedule probably was easier than Ohio State's. I think Ohio State has much better wins than Oklahoma has. So I think we're just flipping coins and picking statistics we like that make us feel comfortable to define our argument. But all in all, Alabama versus Oklahoma is an incredibly great matchup. I think I'm more excited about seeing that one than Ohio State versus Alabama. So Agreed. if I look at it that way as a fan, if I'm saying, hey, I'm not getting what I want anyway with four, but I'm getting much more what I want than what I had in the BCS and previously— I'll take Oklahoma versus Alabama over Ohio State versus Alabama. So I'm, I'm happy about that angle. So as a fan, that's a better choice for me than what there would have been. I would have loved to have seen an impossibility, which I would have loved Notre Dame to go out and Georgia to go in. And I think this playoff would be very exciting with those four teams. I just think Notre Dame could surprise us maybe, but they're just not in the same category. Clemson's not invulnerable. They, they're not. They can be beaten. Their defense in the secondary is not what it's supposed to be. 
I don't know that Notre Dame's going to be able to take advantage of it, and I don't know if Notre Dame's going to be able to slow down Trevor Lawrence and company. Okay, we are playing the Michigan Wolverines on December 29th in the Peach Bowl. James, I, are you excited to play Michigan? How are you feeling about this? We thought this might be the matchup. How are you feeling sitting here on Monday? Yeah, I feel like probably most of you feel like, who who cares? Like, why Michigan? Like, we had a chance to play UCF, which would have actually been very interesting. To me, this just this is incredible that anyone could mismanage this bowl selection process to the point to where we play Michigan again. We play them almost every year, whether it's <laughs> the like Outback it. Bowl or the opening game or something else. I just can't think of like a less inspiring game. Michigan does not want to be there. They would they would love for their season to just be over. They're crushed. They're heartbroken. They're beaten. There's no reward for playing a team they should be better than in a bowl in Atlanta on December 29th. And for us, I think our fans are probably excited about this season. We feel happy with where we are. Playing Michigan just seems like the least exciting of all options. I would have loved to have played a team, almost anyone else, but like think of excitement for me personally. I would have loved to have played West Virginia. I would love to play Washington State. I would have loved to play a team we don't play. Agreed. Michigan is just the same old thing. It's just thing the worst the of the scenarios that happened to you in Michigan. And Michigan is a, I mean, they're a big time program. They're high profile. I mean, normally that would be a fun one if we hadn't played them so often recently, randomly. I, you know, the, they're trying to manage the Bulls and they don't like to stick the same bowl with the group of five team. That's why you're seeing UCF at the Fiesta Bowl and not in the Peach Bowl. There, I mean, there's all of these crazy convoluted tie-ins and and things that they have to consider. So it's not just about making the most appealing matchup. Uh, I don't know. Michigan feels blah. You know, I let me think about this. If I'm just thinking right now, who cares more about this game? I think it's maybe us, but I'm not so sure. Would you say that we think we care a little more than Michigan does? Oh, I think we care a lot more than Michigan does relative to how Michigan probably just does not want to be playing football right now. Like, they're in a bad place. This is not exciting for them. We're in a good place, but we're also a major program, and our players, they don't care. I mean, I'm going to keep saying this. I know some of you think I'm like the Bull Grinch. But seriously, just have a conversation. If you know any Gator players, former ones, current ones, have a conversation and, and seriously ask them, how excited they are to play in this bowl game. And you're going to get the real answer. So I think we do care more, Alan, than Michigan does. Michigan had a season that was three weeks ago, sky high, right. playoff aspirations. They're a very, very good football team. They laid a major egg against their rival they've never beaten. And for us, we have a chance to beat Jim Harbaugh, a guy we have not beat before, a guy who's get a little revenge every time we've played. I think Dan Mullen has a tremendous opportunity here to, to almost like restore the fan base's confidence by beating a guy that's beaten us pretty badly. But all in all, like I'm going to keep saying, none of this stuff really matters. And I think, unfortunately, due to all of the middleman tape that exists in these centrally planned bowl games, we're stuck with a scenario that the free market, if you will, the free market of college football would not have allowed. It would have been UCF versus Florida if we didn't have all those things you mentioned. And that would have been a matchup not only we would have been interested in, but the entire country would have been interested in. And in fact, UCF, I think, gets the worst of it. Here they are, 25, whatever they've won games in a row, and their reward is not a top team. Their reward's not even Michigan, which they would have loved to have played. Their reward is a team that's not even going to move the needle really for them. They, they dodge Ohio State. They dodge all these teams. I think they're in better situations. I just feel like it's an unfortunate failure yeah, they of the beat a, system. They beat an LSU team who I think is going to be similarly unmotivated. The only motivation LSU would have is just to kind of 
protect their honor, but I don't know if that's enough. It's not like it would be us who would want to protect our honor in our home state that, I don't know, this feels like a team that UCF could beat as well if they can get the offense going. So we're going to break down this game in our, our next podcast. We're going to look much closer at Michigan and everything, but they're right now they're a, a seven and a half point favorite. Does that feel right? Do you think that line might move up or down? I would think this line should probably move move up higher. Uh, if you look at again the predictive rankings, Michigan's top five by most people's advanced stats metrics, and we're you know fifteen to eighteen, thirteenth to sixteenth. So Vegas yeah. typically has a bigger spread than seven and a half, but I think they set the line there because of public perception. It's a bowl game. Bowl game lines are notoriously hard for Vegas to make because you don't know, like we talked about, the motivational component. I expect this to change quite a bit as the game goes on. Maybe as maybe as many by two, two and a half points, one way or the other. But if you look at Michigan's style of defense, man-to-man, aggressive, lots of blitzing, it is going to give Dan Mullen opportunities to play call his way into points, which McElwain was unable to do. We actually will have an opportunity there. Uh, we, we can do well against teams that do that. Unfortunately, Allen, and this is unfortunate, this will be a game that Felipe Franks is going to have a hard time passing the ball. And if we cannot pass the ball, we will not be able to run the ball on Michigan, and we will be in trouble. Yeah. So that's why I feel like there's more opportunities for Michigan to beat us by more than seven and a half than there are for us to be within seven and a half. But we'll get a better feeling as the, as the game. Approaches. Michigan's offense is something that I think it's somewhat predictable. Now they can overpower you and just, just abuse you. And they do have good athletes, but I think this line actually may go down if people are looking at the same way we are and that maybe Michigan is unmotivated and this season has kind of been a, a downer at the end, and maybe our players are a little more up. You know, no Rashawn Gary in this game. Michigan's, you know, all everything defensive lineman. He's already said he's not playing in the bowl game. I don't know if that's a tip of the hat to where they're at. And I don't begrudge Rashawn Gary doing that at all. I think that's the smart move for him. But that might signal, yeah, it's not really the most important thing on their plate. Let's look at players going to the NFL. Yeah, speaking of, speaking people, going- of people going to the NFL, and again, get used to players like Rashawn Gary not playing bowl games just as another piece of evidence that the players don't care our own players we've already got one Chauncey Gardner he's gone to the NFL something we talked about early on in the season with the level of play he has he is going to be I think a starting nickelback in the NFL next year what we're going to do here Alan like we do every year is discuss whether or not the player should go pro in your eyes and if that's a good or bad decision since Chauncey's already declared I think it's a great decision for him to do that, that he's accomplished everything he accomplished here. Now's the time for him to go and, and step into the next phase of his career. Do you think it was a good decision? I think so, especially if he's aiming at being a nickel. If he had dreams of being an outside corner, a.k.a. Duke Dawson a year ago, then he needed to come back and prove that. But that's not going to be his spot in the NFL. And the only thing that would is going to move him up or down boards at this point is how fast he runs. And I don't know that he's going to change that much. So I think it's a great time for him to go, proving everything he could playing the nickel this year and playing it really well. So I would I, I think it's a smart move by him. Yeah, definitely a smart move. Again, I think he's going to be potentially an elite nickel in the NFL, judging by what we've seen this year. Let's stay on the defensive side of things, and let's look at Polite. Do you think that he will make the move to the NFL? I think so. I mean, he's on so many first-round boards. I, it would be shocking if he didn't go. It, I can't even think of a reason why he would, unless he just is like, I want to – be at UF again. But I mean, his Twitter handle is retire moms. Basically his goal, I guess is to retire his mom. So he's got a shot to do that. So I think he's gone. Yeah. He needs to go as well. Again, if I'm counseling polite, absolutely. If you're listening to the podcast, 
time to go. Cash in. Good job. You've done great work here. You've contributed well at Florida. There's nothing else you could do or put on film that will raise your stock. How about Jabari Zuniga? This one's a little more iffy. It depends on what info he gets back from the NFL. I assume he's going to test the waters. Now, he didn't put up a ton of stats. He's not the most high-profile guy, but he's a very talented guy. He's a decent to good pass rusher. I think he could use another year, but I don't know if he really fits in what we like to do. He's not really a big end. And he's not quite a, you know, a three, four kind of rush linebacker. So I don't know that he's going to be able to max out what he wants to do in our particular system. He's more of a traditional four, uh, three defensive end. If I'm reading him right and his body type and what he might excel at. So I think if he gets a good enough grade back from the NFL, he's probably gone. What would be a good enough grade for him to go? Well, I guess that's on him, but it's usually a first round and then it's or it's like a day two pick or something like that. I think if he's going to go in the first three rounds, he might as well go. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I think if you're top three rounds in your Zuniga, you go. That's enough where a team will invest in you. They almost certainly will not cut you within your first year there. You'll get an entire year to develop under NFL coaching and see where you're at. I think anything less than a third round pick, he'd have to stay. I think he's going to be, I feel like, I don't know, maybe a bubble kind of guy there. So. Yeah, a lot's going to have to do with his workouts. And, and, you know, it just takes one team to like him. I, he's an enigma for me because he get he got kind of lost in the shuffle of all the guys on the line. And, you know, where we were weak um, wasn't helping him. And, you know, all the, potential, all the attention was on polite and somewhat even more so on C.C. Jefferson. I mean, Zuniga was a guy that popped a ton last year. And you thought maybe he was going to be a star this year. And polite kind of took his shine i guess but interesting guy to watch i could see it going either way here yeah and he's still at a solid season I think, oh good yes I think for sure that the question i'd ask myself from zuniga is do i expect the defensive tackle situation to get better next year and no i think is probably the answer well yeah right? i mean it's gonna be at least that's a great question but i don't know if he's gonna answer ask no but if i'm count we're, we're counseling yeah, sure, right? sure. that's the goal here yeah. so we're saying if i'm zuniga and knowing what i know i ask myself that question that's and if the answer is not significantly better I'm leaving because you're not going to improve which is going to make your stock fall if the NFL sees you have another year where it's kind of similar then whatever potential you had tagged for yourself starts to go into like can't do it so I think that's maybe the biggest hurdle he's facing is we just don't have like you mentioned not only the system but the tackles that would really allow him to do something polite such a fast speed rusher that it doesn't matter what's going on in the tackle spot for him to flash all right, let's go on to the offensive side of the ball, and we'll come back to the defensive side of the ball, saving my player for last. Okay. Let's look at Jordan Scarlett. I think he sh- should probably go. I don't think he has much to prove. He needed to come back this year and show that he was, you know, still had it. I, you know, he's a, he's a guy that I think his stock has gone down somewhat in my eyes. I don't know that he's going to be the game breaker that I thought he could be. But running backs, you only have so many carries in your body – if, if I'm him, I, I'm definitely gone. I can't see him improving his stock. We're going to be a running back by committee team under Dan Mullen. He's, we're also not a power running team, and he's much better at the single back power run. I think you go now and you trust that if you have the skills to make the NFL, you'll make it. And if you don't, another year is not going to change that. You're not going to all of a sudden burst on the scene and become some sort of incredible running back in this system. So I think, I think he should go. Not sure what he's going to do. I imagine, Alan, he's got to be leaning towards leaving. Yeah, I would think so. I think so as well. So, so far, let's recap really quickly. Chauncey's gone. We think Polite's gone. Zuniga maybe a coin flip, maybe leaning towards gone, in our opinion. And then we have Scarlett gone. So, so far, we're 
essentially four for four. Van Jefferson. This one, I I really have no idea. I if I had to guess from right here, I would say he'll probably go. He had a decently productive year. Put some good tape out there. He didn't. It didn't seem like he wasn't maximizing his value to us, or it's like his routes weren't as good or his hands weren't good. You know, he's got decent size, decent speed. I don't know that he would improve his stock much. Now, if we had a different quarterback situation, he came out and just put up a ton of stats and you know had huge numbers. That would certainly draw people's attention. You know, he's only been here one year. He, I think he would have a more successful season next year just from the virtue of everybody being back and, and playing the system again. But I don't know if it's enough to keep him here. This is probably a little coin flip in my mind. I have no idea, again, what he's thinking, but I think he probably should go. I'm with you here. And this a lot of a lot of our answers, Alan, have come down to what we think about the team and the person's skill set. I think Van Jefferson would would be a much better prospect on a different team. Uh, I think he's got to look in the mirror and say, the quarterback situation here is frustrating. It will be murky next year regardless. And it's not going to be one that I think is going to enhance his stock, as you mentioned. So because of that, I think he goes, trusts his route running ability, trusts his polish in his hands, that again, if he's going to make it in the NFL, he will make it. It's hard to see him jumping up like an entire round based upon predicted production for next year. Right. I think I think he goes. He had an excellent year for us. So I, I think, you know, we looked at his stats last week and they weren't overwhelming. But I think if you're going to watch him on film, you're probably going to like what you see. Correct. And stats are not going to be tremendously important to the NFL at this stage anyway. Uh, LaMichael Pirine. So this feels like I'm going to double back and say the opposite of what I said to Scarlett. Uh, I think Pirine could use another year. I think to differentiate himself from, you know, I guess maybe some of the other backs in the full, in the field this year. He would be the lead guy, although certainly Pierce and Malik Davis, if he's healthy, anybody else that we have coming in will get carries. But he's going to be the guy they turn to first and especially show a little bit more even his receiving coming out of the backfield. I think he was underrated doing that. And I think he can still improve on some of his skill sets. He's not an overwhelming athlete. So if he makes it in the NFL, he's going to have to be on, I think, his skills and abilities and not his pure athleticism. Yeah, he doesn't feel like an NFL player to me. His brother in the NFL, more explosive, more dynamic college athlete. Piran seems like a very stable, consistent and runner. And Samaja Piran, I think it's his cousin. but Oh, cousin, yes. Same, whatever. Uh, and he's like a borderline player. He's playing some, but he's not really excelling and you're right Samaje I think is a better prospect than LaMichael and so LaMichael's gonna have to be a, a tactician and and make his way on special teams and other stuff now he's a running back like I said I mean hey man if you have a shot maximize that time period but it feels like he could come back so maybe this is a little coin flippy but I would maybe expect him to stay yeah I would expect him to stay I think again a lot of this is just his own stock of where he is I don't think he's going to get a great draft day report he could improve that because he could be the feature back next year. And like you mentioned, I think what you really do is you, you look at what the NFL says are your deficiencies. And if there are things you can improve on skill-wise, you improve them. And I think that's the difference between Scarlett and Pirine. I don't know what else Scarlett is going to do. He could definitely improve his pass-catching ability. He's been weak out of the backfield sure. with that. Um, and that would assist him at some level. But again, at some point in time, these, they're drafting you because of potential. And I think Pirine's potential is limited and maybe displaying an incredible amount of competence 
would give him a better chance of making a roster in camp, right? Enhancing your professionalism, understanding the playbook. All those things do factor in when you're a borderline NFL player. All right, let's look at the offensive line. Jawan Taylor. He, he's high on some draft boys, which I think maybe is going off his sophomore tape. I think if you were to watch him this year, you might be a little more underwhelmed, especially when you compare the two. And I don't think a lot of those evaluators, they don't really get to that until this time of year. So I think when people watch him, they're going to want him to come back. And they're going to want him to come back and play left tackle. Now, his future might still be at right tackle in the NFL, and I think it, I think it will be. But they're going to want to know, can you play left tackle? That would be the question if he came if he came out right this, this year. Now, if he comes back and plays left tackle well next year, that will up his quotient considerably because of the versatility that they could ask him to pay, play left tackle on a pinch, even if his future is at right tackle. So if I were advising him, I would tell him to come back and, and win that left tackle job. I think that's sound advice for Taylor. Our good buddy, David Boss, who played for Michigan, we've had on this podcast, won two Super Bowls, uh, was an All-American offensive line, tells the story of his first camp with the 49ers coming out, being drafted, and how crazy different it was with the talent level. And how he was very thankful that he went to Michigan, which had a great O-line coach that was very NFL-like, that he was ready mentally to handle the difficulties of playing O-line at that level. I think Taylor would be ill-advised to go there now, primarily from what you mentioned, Alan. He's not played the hardest position in college to prove that he can handle a one-on-one rush like that. And secondarily, although he would be a potential pick, that's why you take a guy like that, size, strength, whatever, a lot of those guys do not make it in the NFL on the offensive line. In fact, I would say potential picks on the offensive line tend to miss more than they hit. The O-line is one of the easiest places to predict a contributor on, and I just don't know he's shown enough to be consistent. I think he could drastically improve his stock if he stayed, and therefore I think the upside for him is higher to stay than to leave. Okay, last but not least, and this one's a little bit out there, Voshan Joseph, the loved or hated or whatever you want to call him in your own playbook, in your own mind. What do you think about Voshan? Well, this is funny. I, I wouldn't have even included him on here, but I've seen him on some of these lists, like will he go or will he not? Obviously, he's eligible. And if you're just going to do a size, strength, speed, like I mean, he's going to be a combine guy, I would think. And that's m- maybe why he would go pro. But when you turn on the tape, obviously there's some things he does really well and some things he does not do very well. He would benefit tremendously from another year if – he can kind of figure it out. He'll have another year in this system. It seems like a no-brainer to me, but guys make weird decisions all the time. Now, he could go and be a second-round pick because some team falls in love with him, but that also feels like maybe that's a mistake because you're not. Ju- it's not just your first contract that you're thinking about, and he could be out of the league just as easily as he could be an all-pro. You know, those, those things uh, are both available to him potentially if he – Figures everything out now, the All-Pro would be the highest end. I don't think he's actually going to make that. But maybe I'll say a successful linebacker versus out of the league. Yeah, I think that he has got to come back. If you look at the NFL, linebacker is an extremely hard spot to crack and stay a part of. And it also requires very consistent play mentally. And we know that is his weakness by far. Another year of tutelage and tutoring and film study can really, really help him. He's always going to be a bit undersized in the NFL, but you know what's funny, Alan, is the NFL is obviously moving towards smaller linebackers as they begin to run more air raid-based concepts. We have certainly dogged Voshan a lot for his coverage abilities, 
But in reality, athletically, he has all the potential to be a very, very good cover linebacker. A lot of his problem is blowing assignments. That's the majority of his problem. And the NFL won't tolerate that. And they will tolerate none of that. So I think he needs to stay, clean that up, prove that he can be a professional from what we know from the inside sources is he's just far away from that now. So I think Voshan stays. So we just named nine guys, I think. That's just a rough estimate. But we've got six, at least six of them as, as going, correct? Yes, and that probably some of those guys that would, I don't know if it would help us. Certainly one of the running backs, I would think, just in terms of scholarship numbers, uh, how many guys we can take in this class. Now, there's nobody out there who I'm like, yes, they, that would be good if they left, that probably wouldn't help our bottom line. Now, there's certain guys down at the bottom of the roster that would probably help us if they transferred. We'll have to see uh, how that shakes out in the next couple of weeks. But let's go ahead and talk about recruiting. The early signing day is coming up in mid-December. Let me give you a little bit of a, a look at where we're at currently, and then we'll talk about maybe what we're expecting over the next couple of weeks. So we're going to use the 24-7 composite rankings. Um, this is a service that kind of combines their list with all, uh, several other ones. So it kind of gives you a, a broader look. Now you could find some variants on all these things, but that's, that's what we're using as our baseline. So currently 21st overall. Uh, so 11th in the sec that shows you the strength of the sec recruiting currently have 17 commits. We could take up to 25 depending on again, how many guys go pro, how many guys transfer might be closer to, 23, 24. We'll see. Uh, no guys currently in the top 100 of this list. Uh, seven players in that list between 100 and 300. No five stars, but nine four stars. James, how are you feeling about that where we're sitting currently? That's not not getting it done. Uh, we're going to cover this again, I think, this season, actually, in our next podcast, which will be before Christmas, maybe in the 20s before Christmas, we'll do a podcast. And I think I'm going to talk about what I talked about a couple of years ago is the importance of getting top 100 talent in order to win a national title. And it's something I say every time we talk about recruiting, Alan, but we are woefully underserved here. Blake Alderman, who I was texting with today, thinks that we'll probably finish in between 10 and 12. And to give you some context, each year that's different, the recruiting points will accumulate would have been 13 in some years and 8 in other years. And we talked about this this past season, Alan. Basically, that puts us in Tier 3 of recruiting, if you will. You have Tier 1, which is going to be the Georgias, the Alabamas, maybe Texas A&M this year. Like Texas. a top three-ish yeah, class. Yeah, somewhere in there. But that's, we're going to go – I'm using that percentage of like top 100 players. That's the big difference. And the second level is going to be how many top 300 players you have. And the third level is then us. You may have zero five stars, maybe one. And then you probably have you know plenty of four stars, but not a lot of like highly ranked four stars, kind of the middle guys. And then some three stars. That tends to be level three. Level three is not good enough. We talked about how in year two, uh, in this class, there should be a big jump so far. There's not going to be a jump at all over historical precedent. Now, we can we can give him another buy, if you will, and say, well, the program's in a different place. You know, when Urban Meyer inherited the program, A is an elite recruiter. B, Ron Zuck recruited pretty well. And C, we were still pretty close to the Spurrier years. Those are all fine arguments. Regardless, how do I feel about this? I feel like this is underachieving. And I feel very confident that this kind of recruiting cannot continue if we want to win the SEC. He cannot beat A&M, Georgia, and Alabama with this kind of recruiting performance. I think the question to ask here, Alan, the question I want to ask you is how are we going to close this? Again, Blake Alderman thinks we'll finish around 10th. Some people are still thinking we can hold out and, and hammer a bunch of these prospects and get to fifth or sixth. 
what do you think this class looks like? And given what we talked about before the season, is this going to be is this going to be good enough for you? How do you feel about it? Yeah, that's a hard one to answer. Obviously, with so much up in the air, I, I think we probably fit, do finish around there, twelfth to eighth. Uh, that's kind of why we were looking last year. That we took a guy yesterday, a three-star offensive lineman, and linemen are notoriously difficult to evaluate. They're it's just kind of your preference. So if you take a three-star offensive lineman, it doesn't mean he's bad. He could be great. Those guys develop late. They're not on those guys like some of those. Like a running back, you can probably pick him out in eighth grade. So, but that does signal to me that maybe we're we're letting that guy commit publicly. So maybe we're not as close as some of the high, high-end guys that we would be after. That would really move the class ranking-wise up. So some of the five-star, high, high-end, four-star guys. So there's a bunch of prospects out there. We do – we got another offensive lineman. That was good. We, we need – some more corners, which we're in on, some decently high guys. And, you know, just a smattering of other players, defensive end, defensive tackle, maybe a safety. You can kind of mix and match a certain combination there. And we are we are chasing a few guys that would definitely move the needle. And I think probably all the guys that they will take, if it goes well, will be four-star-ish guys. If you see us closing with a lot of three-star guys, that's bad news. We should hopefully finish most of these guys with – with a four-star kind of guy. Now that, again, there's a big gap into those four stars. This is tough. If we finish around 10, I think that's okay. Now, again, it's underperforming for Florida. Now, Mullen, I think, and we talk about the bump class. This is even recruiting terminology. That second year, you can do pretty good, even if you put up bad results on the field, a.k.a. Willie Taggart, right? He, they're still going to have a decent class, I assume, unless everyone abandons ship here, despite, despite the fact they looked incredibly bad on the field. Now, Mullen is trying to move, had decent results, and it's not translating. That shows you he's probably his recruiting prowess isn't as high as something we were worried about. But I think you can't overcome that is if in year three, your third class, so after your second season, if you really move the needle on that class, then I, I think if he could go past eight and get up into that top five range, then obviously that's continued to advance. So not what you want to see in this bump class, but I don't think it's necessarily a death knell, but it is underperforming significantly. Can we get there is the question probably on everyone's mind now. And if you're some people, you're going to say, no, we can't get there because we don't pay our players. We don't have bag men. And I'm not going to attest to whether that's true or not true. It's impossible to know. Do I think it's not true? Probably not. I think it's probably true at some level. Do I think it's as true as some people make it out to be? Like Georgia's just handing bags of money to every recruit they get. I think that's patently false because you'd prove that. That's not hard to prove. Uh, these things are complicated. You go back and look at the Reggie Bush situation and those kind of scenarios. They're not obvious. They're hard to figure out. We look at them as fans that they go, oh, it's so obvious. Those recruits are, are how they ranked and they're going there. Uh, certainly Urban Meyer has pulled in top classes year after year after year and has never been caught for bag manning anyone. Again, could be something. If we throw that explanation out, Alan, you're left with the fact that Dan Mullen just is probably what we thought he was going to be. An excellent resource manager and a below average recruiter. You can put him and Chris Peterson in a similar category. I think Dan Mullen is potentially a higher level version of Chris Peterson because he's doing it in the SEC, which is far more competitive than the Pac-12, but probably similar. They rely way more on their coaching than they do their recruiting, and that ultimately is what affects them 
I think, in the elite games. Now, it's too early. Dan could turn this around. Dan could address this. But I think from what we talked about on day zero when Dan got hired, this was the primary concern for me. Number one concern for me was this, and this has not been addressed in my opinion. So my hand was on the panic button when you asked me this question three months ago. It is still there. A top 10 class is not good enough for us as a program winning national championships. It is okay by definition with what you said. And this is not that we had a horrible class where it's going to be terrible. We are addressing needs, which is important. But all in all, those are things fans say to comfort themselves, Alan, when they're not getting good enough results. That's the bottom line. This is underachieving. This season was tremendous overachieving on the field. You would have hoped that would have translated. It did not translate to recruiting. And in the words of my friend Ahmad Black, uh, he would never want to recruit a single player because all it is is just incredible amounts of drama, babysitting, sucking up to, telling them the greatest things ever. And there is something to be said about the fact that Urban is really good at doing those things. And and a lot of Florida players, and I'm going to say this, Alan, they still believe in the old school Spuria mantra, which is if you don't want to come to Florida, then go somewhere else and we'll beat you. In a while, I do love that mentality, and I do really like that as a concept. At some point in time, if you're not getting enough top 100 players, you're not going to be able to win. So there's got to be some balance of that. you got to find a way to dance with the person that's annoying but could buy in and become a great player for you. You have to find a way to get a couple of those guys. So we'll see if Dan can make that happen. Yeah, I think we do want to be in on those top 50 kind of guys. Like You're going to need a few of those guys to come in and, and can be program-type changers whether it's a Tebow or a Harvin or, or these guys who are elite level talents. I don't know that we have any in the class so far. I don't know if we're going to get any. Um, now you can still be a really competitive team and still, you know, you can find guys like Zuniga and polite and those guys can become first round picks. It doesn't. So I'd rather take those guys that the staff has identified than just some guys who have a decent ranking. But I don't think you also want to go on the other side where it's like, yeah, ratings don't matter. Okay. Where the staff is having some success is with future commits. So guys aren't available in this class. So the class of 2020 or 2021, how much does that matter to you in terms of high level recruits into the future? Well, I think there's two things. One, it demonstrates that you're building momentum. So you're showing that, Hey, we are out here. This is improving. And this is something I think that gives a lot of Florida basketball fans some comfort. Right now, if we didn't have the class upcoming for next season, Alan, I think there'd be a panic button being pressed in basketball. There is not because the recruiting momentum is so strong. You feel like this is temporary. So there is something to do with, okay, this is temporary. We're not always going to finish 10th. In fact, maybe we can finish on average 5th or 6th. I don't think anyone expects Dan Mullen to finish 1st, 2nd, or 3rd. It's that, that You have to be elite in that. He's not going to be. We've got to be in that second tier. Maybe that shows we're getting there. However, the other side of the reality is if guys are committing two years ahead of time in today's society, it's almost worthless. I don't know what percentage of those guys convert, but it's pretty small. Very few of them will stick the entire time that way. A lot of them do it so that they can essentially lessen the burden of coaches coming after them aggressively and then kind of silently handle their own matters on their own. It's a tactic. It's a ploy to be able to control their process better. A lot of times it is not a definitive I'm going there. Now, sometimes it is. So that's why I say take that with a grain of salt. But it's definitely better than not seeing the news on future commits. I think positive news about your program upping its level of recruiting is the stuff you want to put out there. I think that's helpful more than it is hurtful. Yeah, if you're going to take a, a – I don't know, a five-star guy in 2021, a one, how much is that worth? 
But those are the kind of guys you want to allow to commit to you. You don't, I mean, like a three-star guy two years out, what is that worth? It's worth nothing. Unless you think they are so wrong about this guy and he's going to be a five-star. You know what? I'm nervous about any commit until he puts his facts in. And they still use fax machines sometimes here in the recruiting world. So I don't want to get too, I don't like to get too high or too low on recruiting. You know me. So the fact that a guy in the future commits, I'm not like, oh yes, let's throw a party. And also I'm not going to like hit the panic button with a top 10 class for right now. Um, I don't think it proves anything. I don't know if it doesn't prove anything either. Okay. Uh, let's talk about QB transfers. Now, we talked about this midseason, and both of us were kind of against taking a recruit at the time. We thought maybe that's disruptive to the team in the middle of the season to go after a guy. I don't know. We don't want to mess with Felipe too much. We've got Emory Jones. What's his thoughts? We also have a guy named Jalen Jones who is coming in. Maybe you don't want to disrupt that. Now, let's talk about taking a guy now. This would be after signing day. All those guys would be in. The season is over. You're not disrupting any momentum. And that was really the question around uh, Kelly Bryant, who is you know, kind of publicly shopping himself in the middle of that. Uh, let me ask about Jalen Hurts, who just had a star turn in the SEC championship game. Are you interested in him? Would you take him? Would you want Florida to take him? Uh, and is there anybody else out there that you're interested in? So when I originally answered this question, Six weeks ago, I said, no, I don't. And I'm going to change my opinion on this. And this is not just because he performed well against Georgia. It's actually bigger than that. This team right now has a a leadership void at quarterback. Even though Franks has led this team to where he is, by all accounts, he is not a leader of this football team. Jalen Hurts, to me, displayed one of the more incredible leadership qualities I've seen a college athlete display in quite some time with how he handled both his benching how he handled this entire season, and how he carried himself in that game against Georgia. If he's available, I think you go out every gun barrel blazing you have to bring him into this program to show you how you win, how you handle yourself, how you be a teammate. And on top of that, he does fit Dan Mullen's offense very well. He's primarily a runner, but he can throw, and he's smart. I think we should go all in on attempting to get him if he were to choose to leave, which again is different than what I once said. Here's the reason why. To me, Franks is done. I've seen enough from Franks. He's never going to turn the corner and make those reads. He's a long-term project. He'd be better suited going to a smaller school where he could really maybe turn a corner like Driscoll did. But I think at Florida, we see what he's seen with him. He's a he's a square peg in a round hole, and he's going to be what he's going to be. Emory Jones, by all accounts, could probably use another year of development. He could play next year. I think it's better if he doesn't, but he could. I think he's your backup. And that leaves you with, with Jalen Jones, who you really want a redshirt, as we know. That's Mullen's preferred plan. So if you look at Mullen's preferred plan, you think I can get leadership, I can get a guy who shows my players how to be teammates, I can get a guy who's a winner, and I can get a guy who fits my system the best. I think there's real opportunity there for us to go get him. With all that being said, given how Mullen seems to have handled the transfer market, I do not expect him to even attempt to go after Jalen Hurts, which I think personally would be a resource management. I don't want to say failure because it's going to be hard to get him anyway. But I think that if we don't attempt to get him, there's a little bit of a gap there, judging where we are as a team and how it could help us. And again, I've flipped my script here, given what I've seen primarily from this leadership arena, which I think this team lacks. So that's what I'm going I'm to hinge my, my bet on that one. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to flip with you here. I would like to take him now. 
I think as I've watched Dan Mullen's offense this year, and I've watched Felipe having Jalen in there, I think would streamline pro- the process. It would it would allow us to look more like we want to look when we do get the guy in there. It would, so it would allow all the other players to kind of funnel into what our preferred system is. Again, I have no, I assume he's gonna. We're assuming he's gonna graduate transfer, which means he would be eligible immediately, and you know. Florida's got to be at least on his radar. It's the type of program I think he would want to go to. He's not going to go to like Central Michigan or something like that. So I, I would have to think if we called, he would at least pick up the phone. It seems like we didn't do that with Kelly Bryant, or maybe we were just weren't willing to do it midseason, so we weren't in the mix with him. I think Jalen Hurts is potentially a better player than Kelly Bryant in our system, although who knows. And as you said, I think there's an opportunity for him to come in and, and lead. Now, when we said before, we you only want to take those guys in the kind of a bridge year. And this is more of a bridge year than I originally thought it might be. Uh, the graduate market isn't, isn't salvation. For every Russell Wilson, you're going to have a Malik Zaire. I thought it was strange that we were recruiting Zaire at all. I didn't like it at the time. I was willing to say, well, we don't know what we have. Why don't it can't hurt? I don't think it hurt, but didn't help us. He was kind of who I thought he was. Jalen Hurts is probably who I think he is, and I think that might be good enough for us next year. I think it could up our winning potential, maybe even by a game or two, and it could allow us to hang with the the big boys. So I think you take a shot at him. Again, I I kind of agree with you. I don't know that Mullen is going to go out and try to get him. We'll wait and see, though. I mean, he's definitely not leaving pre-championship now which you don't really need him to. He can show up anytime in the spring. Okay, let's talk about Kyle Trask real briefly. I mean, seems like his window might have closed to be our quarterback. Not definitely. Do you think he transfers? And if you were him, would you transfer? If I'm him and I want to play quarterback, I transfer. I think the decision Kyle Trask is making right now is do I want to have an opportunity to actually be a starting quarterback somewhere? I've spent my whole life plying my trade. I'm obviously good enough to compete. I haven't gotten a shot. And that answer may be no. He may just say, you know what? This isn't for me. I've had some hardships here. I'm okay with my life. I like being at Florida. I'm going to stay on the roster, finish out my time here, and I'll do something else with my life. So I'm going to answer that question with, if my passion at my moment in life at his stage was football, I would transfer and I would transfer to a smaller school where I had a, a great shot of winning a starting job. And I would attempt to play my two years there and give myself a shot. You're big. You're strong. See what you can do. See if you can develop lesser competition. Uh, that There's a route there to be a longtime NFL quarterback, even as a backup. I think that's what he should do. If he stays, I think you can bet that he's made the other decision, that football's not going to be his thing. But I think he should transfer if football's his thing. I think that's clear to me. His time has now passed. His window is going to be closed. I don't see scenarios where it's great for him unless, Alan, Felipe Franks were to transfer, then it's him, Emery, and Jalen Jones. We know that Jalen Jones has to be redshirted. That put Trask in the backup seat. Now maybe you reconsider that. You're one injury away from starting. That just seems unlikely at this point in time. That's a situation he's actually going to be in. So assuming that's not the case, I think if it's Franks, Jones and Emery, so Jones and Jones, right? Uh, then I think in that case, he leaves. I I think he could slash should. I think it would be great for him to get some playing time. I mean, maybe go down to Louisiana Tech where 
Jeff Driscoll was. You know, I have no idea about the kind of quarterback market of lower tier FBS teams, but I'm sure there would be somebody who's willing to take a shot at him. I mean, who knows? Now, he's not going to be the most sought after guy, but if he's got a shot somewhere, maybe he should take it. You want to talk some Heisman? I do want to talk some Heisman. So it was a foregone conclusion that Tua was going to win the Heisman race. Right. And my boy Will Greer, had he won a couple of very close games at the end, would have had himself right there. But he did not. So that leaves us with with five candidates, one of whom's Greer. But I think in reality, Alan, we probably agree that these three guys are going to be the guys. Tua, Haskins of Ohio State, and Colin Murray of of, um, Oklahoma. So those are our three. Now, only 10% of the Heisman ballots were cast before the games on Saturday. As they should. Anyone who cast it before that should have their Which is a historically low number because a lot of times they cast it before that, which tells me something, Alan. A, either everyone's abiding by what they should be doing, which we know historically they do not, or B, this was not a foregone conclusion in the eyes of the public. Who do you think wins the Heisman? I don't know at this point. I would have said Tua before the weekend, but maybe a little recency bias might give it to Kyler Murray. He was electric at at times against Texas. Although I don't know, weirdly, you know, it's like if you think about that game, do you think about the Oklahoma defense and that safety and other things? I think I would still give it to Tua. He's been a revelation in an Alabama offense that normally doesn't do anything like this. So, I mean, if you want to see an alternate version of what Murray is doing, it was just last year with Baker Mayfield. So, I don't know. Maybe I would be hesitant to like give the quarterback, give the award to two straight Oklahoma quarterbacks. Although that was not a disqualifier for me. Haskins has been really good, but I don't, I don't think on the level as a college player as those two. So I would want to give it to two, and I still think he probably edges out Murray here. So stats wise, Haskins has your best quarterback numbers. Right. Well, that's also two isn't playing in the second half of and two is not playing in the second half of most games. So he would have had them. Murray has overall your most impressive numbers, 870 some odd rushing yards. He may rush for a thousand, depending on how things go. A million touchdown passes, a good completion percentage, right? So these numbers are out there. So Tua's numbers are lower because he did not play as much. Tua's numbers fell off towards the end of the year, partially injured, better competition. And then Tua had a very horrible first half against the best competition he faced, whereas Murray, of course, had a great game against a a much, let's call it, you know, much more defensively inferior opponent, right, than Georgia. This is interesting to me. I I want to call the upset here with Murray. I feel like a lot of the the narrative is people almost, like, thought it was going to be Tua's, which may have hurt him. And then Murray comes along and he's electric and he's incredible. But you made, you made I think, the X-Factor argument. I think what's going to sit on people's ballots is what do they do with the Baker Mayfield problem? If there's no Baker Mayfield last year, I think Murray probably sneaks this one out and wins. Baker Mayfield is now the biggest hurdle to Murray. It's a system situation. He did the same thing Baker did, only even better than Baker did. I don't know if they want to give it to him twice. The Alabama story is an interesting one. It's a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback at Alabama where they haven't done anything like this before. I think because of that, two is going to retain it. But I think without Baker, Allen, the point you made, I think Murray probably would have been able to win this thing. I think that's going to work against him. And sometimes I lament that this is a quarterback award. But when you look at the stats of like Tua and Murray, it's hard to go, we should give it to somebody else because it's such a quarterback dominant game now. And you know, we talked at the beginning of the year, some Heisman 
outliers and some betting odds. And, you know, I was intrigued by a lot of the defensive linemen, you know, whether it's Gary or Oliver or the Clemson guys, and none of them have really separated themselves. Now, you know, some of the Clemson guys have gotten some touchdowns and that's been impressive, but defensively it's not been as dominant as you expected them to be. So it's kind of disappointing to me that those guys didn't make it into the mix, whether they should or they shouldn't have. I don't think they're going to be there in New York. A couple of news and notes items. McElwain hired by Central Michigan. What does that feel like to you? I I mean, good luck, Central Michigan. And he might do fine there. Probably will do better than most people they would hire there. And if you're Central Michigan, maybe that's good enough. I mean, he was successful enough at, um, at Colorado State. He was decently successful at Florida until the wheels came off. I think this is a fine hire for them, but it shows you his level of the level of interest in him coming off, you know, being in a job like Florida and he's now at central Michigan. Yeah. This to me really shows what Strickland said at that press conference about things that I won't say. Basically central Michigan is a fall off of a cliff job for a guy who was quote unquote electric at, at Colorado state and then won two sec titles, even if they were as fraudulent as they were at Florida that's a far fall, and that speaks way more to character issues than it does to coaching. And the coaching was bad, as we chronicled on this podcast. But even then, a lot of these mid-tier programs would bite. So I think for him, that really illustrates how the public and how the athletic director community feels about Jim McElwain. Yeah, if you're a Central Michigan, I mean, the, a lot of times, I mean, you just look at what um, you can do if you take a flyer on a guy. Uh, and it could be a young up-and-coming guy that Western Michigan did. So Central Michigan maybe could have gone that route. But they went the established route. It's not a terrible route. But, you know, when you think back, back when you think back about the McIlwain era, we're mostly, mostly left with disappointment. And a lot of that centers around his colossal arrogance with the real Will Greer situation. Now, at the time, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Greer didn't seem like he was the most trustworthy figure in all of this. But looking back on that, it's just one of the bigger bigger blunders in college football history, I think. As a last note before we look at these bowl games before our next episode, two items that happened over the weekend. One, we talk about the three-year test in college coaches. Lincoln Riley, Tom Herman Allen both look very strong on their three-year test. We talked about Tom Herman after losing to Maryland, and we said it's a long season. If we think he's the guy he's supposed to be, it will reveal itself. Texas looks very strong. They improved as the season went on. The recruiting class is in the top five yet again. Very, very good chance that he passes the three-year test. We're going to find out next year. Lincoln Riley has already passed his three-year test, but there's an asterisk there, Alan. He did it with Stoops' players. So it's in a weird way for him, right? He inherits really good talent. Herman inherits sort of like one year of good talent and dysfunction. Either way, keep an eye on those two guys. And then lastly... The fake punt that Georgia ran. Wow. As a coaching corner item here. I won't spend a ton of time on this because it's obvious. Was that one of the worst decisions you've seen in a major game? It's hard to even divine what they were thinking. I mean, if you look at the play itself, Georgia was in, I mean, Alabama was in punt safe. And to run that play into that formation at that time in the game, I mean, I like boldness. I like pulling out all the stops. I like being aggressive. But that just felt like foolishness. Now, even if it worked, I would have been like, man, that was a risky thing. I can't believe they did that. Uh, Yeah, kind of really unbelievable that it happened. 
That is a train wreck, just an absolute train wreck of a call. And it's amazing, Alan, because the narrative is this. Wow, Kirby Smart has been beating the brakes off of Alabama. He's the only team in the world to do it twice. And the first game, cover two, blow a rail route, which is a huge mistake. He's a defensive guy. And this game, an unbelievably bad special teams call with three minutes left in a game where Jalen Hurts is in. And no offense to Jalen Hurts, but I, I yeah, he had a nice drive. I got to feel pretty good about punting him yeah, deep. Yeah, you're, you're not going against this Baker guy's not or Mayfield. Getting, he's not or getting something. reps in here. They're not as good passing. They're more one-dimensional. Unbelievable. If Unbelievable. I'm a Georgia fan, you go from thinking, man, Kirby's a salvation. This is unreal. To now starting to think maybe Kirby can't close the game out, which isn't necessarily fair. But that's how perception works. And that was such a bad decision that I think it's going to taint Georgia fans for some time. I think they're going to think about just that decision. If you lose the game and you punt there, I don't know how mad Georgia fans could realistically be as well, You can't second-guess that call. But you cannot fake a punt on 4th and 11 when Alabama is clearly in punt safe with their defense, not their return team out there, telling you don't fake a punt. Just incredible, incredible Crazy. shenanigans there. All right, walk us through these bowl games. Now, we are doing this. For pure entertainment. Pure entertainment. I'm the Bull Grinch. Alan's somewhere in between. But the names of these bulls and the matchups, this is what you get with bowl season. This is a fantastic, most wonderful time of the year. And we are going to bring you all the bowl games that occur between now and our next episode. So, yeah, we're mostly doing this so I can read off these bowl games in their names. Okay. Starting on December 15th, the AutoNation Cure Bowl. Tulane is favored by three and a half versus Louisiana. So to me, I like to look at spreads and motivation in bowl games. Three and a half means Vegas has no real idea, but Tulane has a more experienced roster. Tulane's traditionally a better program in Louisiana, which means you lean towards them unless they're more senior laden. I haven't looked at the roster. I'm going to take a flyer here and take Louisiana, thinking they're hungry for this game and they want to win the Cure Bowl, the Auto Nation Cure Bowl. More I than, love it. More than Tulane does. I'm going to go Tulane here. I, I like them. I like the the mean green wave. The New Mexico Bowl, North Texas versus Utah State. Utah State's favored by nine and a half, although their coach has been hired by Texas Tech, Matt Wells. So that's always something to take into account, too, when these smaller teams lose their head coach. How is that going to affect them? Yeah, North Texas crushed Arkansas. Utah State, great year. I, I appreciate the simplicity of this bowl name. It's the simplest one we'll have, the New Mexico Bowl. It's almost incredible how easily it is named. I still like Utah State here. I think this is an historic year for them. And in historic years, your team still tends to play well in the bowl. I'm going to go North Texas here. I, I like their upside. Utah State, when you lose a coach like that, it can just be deflating. Although, as you said, it's a historically good year for them. So that, that maybe balances it out there. But that, that number is a little high for me on my random pick here of the New Mexico Bowl. All right, the Mitsubishi Motors Las Vegas Bowl. Fresno State, a four-and-a-half-point underdog against Herm Edwards-led Arizona State. Successful campaign for Herm Edwards. What we've said all along, we thought would be a dumpster fire. They're yeah. not great, but here they are in a bowl Despite game. Despite all odds. Yeah. It's kind of working. It's not so bad. Uh, I appreciate that Las Vegas put their name in there because I often wonder, like, where is the Auto Nation Cure Bowl? I didn't look it up, so I don't know. I presume it's in Louisiana, but I don't even know that. I know where the Mitsubishi Motors Las Vegas Bowl is. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. It's actually in uh, Michigan. No, I'm just kidding. It's yeah, in Las right. My my mind was almost really blown there. Uh, so I'm looking at which team is going to be like less interested in gambling. I think Herm Edwards, NFL background, very professional, going to keep his team on the on the straight and narrow. Fresno State, brutal loss or sorry, win, brutal win, brutal loss. I flicked on their opponent on BYU, not BYU, Boise State. I'm going to get there. I think they're like they're they rode their high. They're like happy. They've accomplished their goal. 
They got what they wanted. They feel good. They're going to be just enjoying themselves in Vegas too much. I'm going to take Arizona State here. I like the team that's punching up in these scenarios, and that's Fresno State. Plus, they get some points, so I'll take them. They seem fun. Okay, Raycom Media Camellia Bowl, if I'm saying that right. Georgia Southern, our old friends, versus Eastern Michigan. Eastern's giving up one point here. So I've got some friends who went to Georgia Southern, and I'm going to pick Georgia Southern for yeah. that reason. Both my parents went there. I'm a product of Georgia Southern. So I guess I got to go with that. Who knows, though? Are you going to be tuning into the Raycon Media Camellia Bowl? I hope so. I hope that I'm going to be tuning into that bowl. Uh, it's, it's got a great name. I don't know what the Camellia stands for. Is that a city? Is that a place? Is it a woman? Is it a flower? What is it? I don't even know. No one can say for sure that it's been lost to time itself. The winds of time have, t- have taken that away. Okay, the R and L, R plus L, R and L. Carrier. Carrier Bowl. Yeah, New Orleans. New Orleans uh, Bowl. Another city bowl. Thank you for that, New Orleans. Yes. Appreciate you. This one's kind of fun, actually. If I'm going to watch one on December 15th, maybe this is the one I would watch. Middle Tennessee State versus App State. App State's favored by 7.5. Yeah, another great season from App State. This is actually a good, like you mentioned, a good game. Middle Tennessee State's also good. And I'm going to take App State here. I think that uh, this is this is a good this is a good job by the New Orleans Bowl. Nice job creating a bowl that's, that's actually interesting. Yeah, I'm going to take App State, too. I'm... Rather surprised their coach hasn't been hired yet. So maybe he's gone by the time this actually takes place, and I would change my bet. But I'm going to take them right now. On to December 18th, the Cherubundi Boca Raton Bowl, UAB minus one against Northern Illinois. The Mouth of the Rat, sponsored by Cherubundi. Always enjoy that. Whatever uh, Cherubundi is. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. You know, feel free to let us know. I guess we are talking about them, which is why they put their name on this bowl. Northern Illinois, more established than UAB. UAB, much more excited to be there after their program was dead. I'm still going to go experience here, Northern Illinois. No way, UAB all the way. December 19th, the DXL Frisco Bowl in San Diego State versus Ohio, minus three. Is it at all confusing to you that it's the DXL Frisco, which makes me think San Francisco, and then I get San Diego State in the the bowl game? I don't know. It's weird reading that out loud. But San Diego State, close to home. Fun traveling for them. Ohio jackpot. They get to go out to California for the holiday. Ohio's pretty good. I like Ohio in this game. I'm going to take Ohio as well. This one would be one if I was doing a, a bowl ranking. You know, you put confidence points. It would be towards the lower end. I really have no idea how these teams are going to perform. All right. One of the best names here on December 20th, the Bad Boy Motors Gasparilla Bowl. Marshall, a one and a half point underdog versus UC, USF. Excuse me. Yeah, I think Bad Boy Mowers has been brilliant to sponsor this stuff. It's kind of like when GoDaddy sponsors stuff. You remember it, and I'm not in the market for a mower of any kind, but if I was, I'd probably consider Bad you, Boy. You would get a Bad Boy? I'd, I'd just consider it because I'd, I'd la- I know about it, and it's, it's kind of entertaining. That fits your brand. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if I'd get it. I'd have to look at the reviews. But uh, Gasparillable in Tampa, USF, not exactly traveling far. Marshall, excited. USF, not excited. I'm going Marshall. Why not? USF tanking as the season goes on. You know, not a believer in Charlie Strong there, huh? No, I'm not a believer in Charlie Strong. Uh, I think he's a great guy, and I think he's a nice organizer, but I don't think he's a great coach. Okay, December 21st, the Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl. Now, this is nice if this is actually in the Bahamas. I assume it is. FIU versus Toledo. Toledo is a six-point underdog. Again, it seems unfair that FIU goes to this game. They live in a tropical environment. That's true. Why would you not take Eastern Michigan or some other team that wants to get Come the on, heck Bahamas out of Bowl. 
Yeah, that seems like a fail to me. So again, FIU not motivated, doesn't really care. I think Toledo very happy to be out of the cold weather. They're gonna they're gonna win this one. <laughs> I like it. Great logic there. The famous Idaho Potato Bowl. Western Michigan, BYU. BYU at 12 and a half point favorite. A big line there. Yeah, whenever you see double digit lines in bowl games, you back the truck up and you put a massive amount of confidence on it. It's just the way that it goes. Vegas to do that means that this is like it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter how many potatoes the BYU players <laughs> eat in their potato bag. You know, everyone gets a bowl bag of stuff you get by your sponsor. Right. They're Watch gonna the get, carbs. Yeah, I don't know. They're gonna get famous potatoes in their bag, but it doesn't matter how many of those guys eat. They're going to beat Western Michigan. What makes a potato famous, I wonder? Okay, December 22nd, the Birmingham Bowl. Oh, if you could go to the Bahamas Bowl or you have to go to Birmingham. No offense, Birmingham. Memphis, not traveling very far versus Wake Forest. Memphis, a three and a half point underdog. Favorite. Favorite, excuse me. Favorite, yes. yeah. Memphis, dejected again. They've lost four times to UCF now. They've been close all those times. Their carrot is a Wake Forest team has been up, down, all over the place. Could be good, could be horrible. I'm, I'm going to take Memphis in this game, although I'm tempted to take Wake Forest because I think they're happy to actually be in the bowl. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go Memphis, though. I'll take Wake. They looked good at the end of the year there. The Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. Houston versus Army. Army is surprisingly favored by three. Now, I don't know who... Lockheed paid to get Army into the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. Maybe but, it's just I think this is the one that they are automatically okay. Good. For. Now I was going to say secondarily, we know that Lockheed Martin obviously supplies tons of stuff to the government. So nice work by them to further put themselves in bed with the government. Yeah, I mean, but, this is funny that someone like this advertises because do I really need to? Yeah. I'm not going to go shopping at Lockheed Martin. Doesn't matter because they're basically like a like we said they're like a contracted. You know, they're, they're safe. They're protected. Here. Not a free market. Anyway, no, enough of the economics. Houston is 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 really good, I think. And Army had a nice season. Uh, I'm going to take Houston here as a three-point underdog. I don't think Ed Oliver is going to play in this game. So I'm going to take Army. Well, you just dropped some advanced knowledge on me there. I, did, I got so much. Yeah, that hurts knowledge. me. If he's not playing, I want to switch to Army. Okay. I'm going to make that my caveat. Well, we'll wait and see. The Dollar General Bowl. Buffalo minus four against Troy. I think Buffalo is going to be so excited to be out of New York for this game. And I don't even know where this game is. So hopefully it's not in New York. What if it's in Buffalo? That would be real bad. But I think that they're going to be spending all of their money at Dollar General on on like little play toys and things to keep themselves entertained. If it is in Buffalo, because they're good at that, it's cold. So I think Buffalo has the edge on Troy here. Buffalo has that big-time quarterback prospect. It'll be interesting to see if he plays in this game. I think he will, because those guys need all the film they can get. All right, the SoFi Hawaii Bowl. Of course, featuring Hawaii, minus two against La Tech. Yeah, so Hawaii's benefit of living in paradise is to stay in paradise. That's fair. Why would they want to go anywhere else? For They're like, yeah, world? we're having the bowl. You come here. Louisiana Tech, you're sending a bunch of Cajuns into Hawaii. I'm not sure if Hawaii is ready for that. <laughs> uh, and, and therefore, I think that Louisiana Tech gets the win because they're just not going to know how to handle the Cajun culture there in Hawaii. Oh, wow. I'll take Hawaii on their home turf. Why not? Well, this has been... A most fun postseason part one episode, Alan Williams. If you like the content on the show, again, hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter or on your favorite social media platform. Give us a dono or a hundo bomb on Patreon or simply tune in next time, which is going to be somewhere around December 21st or 22nd. Enjoy the Bulls. We look forward to seeing you then. We have a full breakdown of the Florida Michigan game as well as the playoff matchups.
workforce. When the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job and at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster for your next job and the next. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's.